The Discovery of the DNA Double Helix An article from Arun Klang from MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology, Cambridge, United Kingdom GMB 2004 Introduction 50 years ago, on 25th April 1953, there appeared three papers in the journal Nature which changed our view of the world. The structure of the DNA double helix with its complementary base pairing is one of the greatest discoveries in biology in the 20th century. It was also most dramatic since quite unexpectedly the structure itself points to the way in which the DNA molecule might replicate itself and hence revealed the secrets of life. The structure was solved in the Cavendish Laboratory, Cambridge, by Francis Crick and James Watson using X-ray diffraction data from fibers of DNA obtained by Rosalind Franklin at King's College London. The article aims to tell the story of how these came to happen. The origin of the research on DNA, the early investigations by Maurice Wilkins at King's College, the sorting out of the two forms of DNA by Franklin, the wrong path taken, the intervention of all the rivalities from the early generation, Lawrence Bragg and Linus Pauling, and the final model building by Watson Creek to give the three-dimensional structure. It will also describe the initial, most hesitant reception of the proposed structure and its confirmation biochemistry by Arthur Kornberg and by X-ray crystallography at King's College by Wilkins Group. Yet this remained a discovery in chemistry until the biological principle of semi-conservative replication was proved by Messelson and Stahl in 1958. The Transforming Principle In 1945, the Royal Society of London awarded its highest honour, the Copley Medal, to Oswald Avery in the Rockefeller Institute of New York for establishing the chemical nature of the transforming principle. The transforming principle was an extract by means of which non-pathogenic mutants of the Pseumococcus bacterium could be transformed into a pathogenic form. The president of the society, Sir Harry Dale, commented, here surely is a change to which we were dealing with higher organisms, we should accord the status of a genetic variation and the substance inducing it, the gene, one is tempted to call it, appears to be a nucleic acid of the desoxyribose type. Whatever it be, it is something which should be capable of complete description in terms of structural chemistry. The hesitation about gene reflects the belief then held by some biochemists and biologists the bacteria did not possess genes. Eight years later, the president's challenge was answered. There was a complete description of the 3D structure of DNA, what a chemist would call its configuration, the double helix, by Watson Creek, using X-ray diffraction data from Franklin and Willings. This paper aims to describe how this came out, much of the story has been told in parts, but Franklin's scientific work has never been fully described, and I have therefore drawn on her notebooks now in the archives of Turkey College, Cambridge, to document it. 
we begin with chemical structure of DNA, that is how the links in phosphate, deoxyribose, sugar backbone are made and now the heterocyclic nitrogenous bases are connected to the sugars. These had been worked out only two years earlier by Brown and Todd in Cambridge. Destruction of DNA since the structure of DNA is so well known, there's a little point in keeping it to the end as the denouement of the story. The double helix consists of two intertwined helical phosphate sugar backbones with the heterocyclic DNA bases projecting inwards from each of the two strands. The two chains are antiparallel, running in opposite directions and are related by a two-fold axis of symmetry, perpendicular to the axis of the double helix. The bases are arranged in purine pyrimidine pairs, adenine with thymine, guanine with cytosine, linked by hydrogen bonds. And these base pairs are stacked on top of each other along the helix axis at a distance of 3.4 Armstrong apart. The glycosidic bonds are related by the perpendicular diet, so that they occur in identical orientations with respect to the helix axis. The two psychosidic bonds of pair will not only be the same distance apart for all pairs, but can be fitted into the structure either way around. This feature allows all four bases to occur on both chains, and so any sequence of bases can fit into the double helix. The two chains are said to bear a complementary relationship to each other. This means, as Crick and Watson spelled out in their second paper in Nature in May 1953, that when the two chains come apart during replication of DNA, each can be used as a template to assemble a duplicate of its former partner. The crucial feature of this structure of DNA is not therefore the actual double helical form of the two phosphate sugar chains, eye-catching as it is, but the unique pairing of base pairs projecting from each strand. Structural research on DNA In 1945, most biochemists had doubts whether something as simple as what DNA was thought to be repeats on the four nucleotide bases could be the genetic substance. More complex molecules like protein chromosomal proteins were thought to be more likely candidates. There were some who did believe in DNA, in particular the Fage group in the USA led by Max Delbruck and Salvador Luria. This group mostly geneticists studied bacteria viruses, bacteriophages. A younger number of that group was James Watson, who in October 1950 went to Copenhagen to learn nucleic acid chemistry, but was converted to a structure approach by hearing Maurice Wilkins speak at a conference on large molecules in Naples in May 1951. Wilkins described his X-ray diffraction studies on fibers of DNA and showed the diffraction pattern with much more detail than had been obtained by early workers, Asbury and Bell in 1938. Moreover, they indicated a degree of personality which raised the possibility of a molecular interpretation by X-ray analysis. Watson therefore decided to go to a laboratory where he might learn X-ray diffraction techniques and failing to interest Wilkins, he eventually moved his fellowship 
to the MRC unit in Cambridge headed by Max Parrots. Here the structures of the proteins hemoglobin and myoglobin were being tackled. Watson arrived in September 1951 and met Francis Crick, who was working for his PhD on hemoglobin under Max Parrots and found him like-minded about the importance of DNA. A preamble on X-ray diffraction by crystals and by fibers. X-ray crystallography provides a way of deducing the structure of a molecule by analyzing the diffraction pattern produced when a beam of X-rays falls on a crystal in which the molecules are regularly arranged in three dimensions. The pattern is nothing like a conventional photograph. It shows a set of spots of varying intensity and interfering the structure from the pattern is not a direct process. This is because each spot corresponds to a diffracted wave from the molecule lying in a particular set of planes in the crystal. The molecular structure of the crystal could be reconstructed mathematically from a knowledge of the amplitudes and phases of the diffracted waves. Amplitude means strength of the wave, and phase means the position of the peaks and thoughts of the wave relative to some reference point, but the phase is lost in the recording. Hence arises the so-called phase problem in X-ray crystallography, which is to develop methods for determining indirectly these lost phases. For small molecules, analytical methods have been developed, and for large molecules like proteins, the problem was solved in 1953 by Max Perrotts by his implementation of the heavy atomizomorphous replacement method. Fibrous macromolecules polymers of small units, the monomers, regularly arranged, present a further challenge in X-ray diffraction, since in fibers the long molecules, though roughly parallel to one another, are usually not all rationally oriented relative to one another in a regular manner. The observed diffraction pattern then represents the rational average of the patterns that would be given by different orientations. If the chemical structure of the monomer is known, as was, for example, the case of rubber or cellulose, then the polymer structure can be solved by building models and comparing the calculated diffraction patterns with the observed ones. This is the model building approach which was used by Watson Crick for DNA. The problem is that there is rotation of the single chemical bonds between monomers, so other constraints must be used to fix how the monomers join head to tail. King's College, London Wilkins was a senior member of the MRC Biophysics Unit at King's College, London, set up by John Randall in 1946, after the war, to carry out an interdisciplinary attack on the secrets of chromosomes and their environment. Wilkins worked to develop spatial microscopes, but having heard of the greatly improved methods devised by Rudolf Signer at Bern for extracting long, unbroken molecules of DNA, he obtained some of the material and found a way of drawing uniform fibers from a viscous solution of DNA. Examination under polarized light showed them to be well ordered 
characteristic of long molecules oriented parallel to one another. He enlisted the help of a graduate student in the unit, Raymond Gosling, who was studying ram sperm by X-ray diffraction. By keeping the fibers in a wet atmosphere, Gosling and Wilkins obtained the X-ray diffraction photograph that Wilkins later showed at Naples, on which so excited Jim Watson. Another early diffraction photographs of various specimens showed hazy patterns later understood to be indicating helicopter features. Rosalind Franklin In January 1951, the King's College group was strengthened by the arrival of Rosalind Franklin. She was a physical chemist who was in studying the structure of carbons using X-ray diffraction methods. She has been at the CINRS lab in Paris, where she learned and improved X-ray diffraction techniques for dealing quantitatively with substances of limited internal order. These presented much more difficulty than the highly ordered crystals which X-ray crystallographers were using to solve the structures of small molecules. It is important to realize in what follows that in Paris, Franklin gained no experience of such formal X-ray crystallography. The combination of these X-ray diffraction techniques and chemical preparatory skill attracted the attention of Randall, and Franklin was invited by him to bring her experience to London. Randall's proposal was clearly to put more professional effort into the DNA work begun by Wilkins and Gosling. Randall, however, left an unfortunate ambiguity about the respective positions of Wilkins and Franklin, which later led to dissension between them about the demarcation of the DNA research at King's. To these must be added the very different personalities of the two. A letter of Randall to Franklin in December 1950 makes clear that on the experimental X-ray effort there would be for the moment only yourself and Gosling. Wilkins did not see this letter and was away when Franklin arrived in January 1951 and Gosling was formally placed under her supervision. Nevertheless, he still apparently thought of Franklin as a member of his team. Wilkins handed over the singer DNA to them and turned to an X-ray study of sperm where DNA is complexed with proteins. It should be remembered that at the time no one, not even Watson, had imagined that the 3D structure of DNA alone, important as that might turn out to be, would by myself indicate how the molecule replicate itself and hence reveal the secret of life. Within the first year, Franklin transformed the state of the field. By drawing thinner fibers, she was able to enhance the alignment of the DNA molecules within the spacemen. And these spacements, together with the finer collimation of the X-ray beam generated from a microfocus X-ray tube, which she and Gosling had assembled, produced shaped diffraction patterns. There, however, showed viral features, and it was not until Franklin made a systematic study of the fibers that their problem was solved. 
the A and B forms of DNA. In a crucial advance, Franklin controlled the relative humidity in the camera chamber by using a cereal of saturated salt solutions, and thus was able to regulate the water content of the fibrous basements. In this way, she showed that, depending on the humidity, two forms of the DNA molecule existed, in which she later named A and B, and defined the conditions for the transition between them. The A-form, which she first called crystalline, was found at and just below 75% relative humidity. Above that point, there is an abrupt transition to the B-form, which she originally called wet. The X-ray patterns of the A and B-forms are shown in figure 15 and 16 respectively. It became clear that all previous workers had been working unbeknown to themselves mostly with a mixture of the two forms, or at least with poorly oriented spacements of the A form and, in retrospect, with occasionally hazy pictures of the B form. The B form pattern is illustrated in figure 16 is the superb picture B51 which Franklin obtained later in May 1952 and which was achieved iconic status. It was this picture that was shown to Wilkins by Watson in early 1953 and prompted the Cambridge pair into active model building. But even the less shrinking X-ray patterns which Franklin had obtained by September 1951 showed clear evidence of the helix structure. The theory of diffraction by a helix had been worked out by Alex Stokes at King's at the behest of Wilkins and also independently by Cochrane, Crick and Vand the same year, published in early 1952. The characteristic feature of the pattern is the X-shaped pattern of streaks ranged in a set of layer lines, from which it can be deduced that the pitch of the helix in the B-form is 34 Armstrong. A strong X-ray reflection lies on the meridian corresponding to a spacing of 3.4 Armstrong, this is produced by regular stacking of the bases on top of each other. Since the helix pitch is 34 Armstrong, this means that the helix, whatever it is in detail, repeats after 10 units per turn. This photograph is particularly striking in that it shows not only the X-shaped pattern of streaks in the center but also secondary fans emanating from the two 3.4 Armstrong meridional reflections, top and bottom, and running obliquely to the equator. These are characteristic of the discontinuous helix, as is to be expected from the discrete moieties in a phosphate sugar chain. In the A form, the repeat of the structure is 28 Armstrong compared with 34 Armstrong in the B consistent with a microscopic shrinkage of 25% in the length of the fibers. The A-form does not show the characteristic X, but there is a gap on the meridian of the photograph, consistent with a helical structure as Franklin recognized. The A-form, as later recognized by Watson, is a somewhat more tightly wood form of the B-double helix in which the bases change their tilt obliquely to the fiber axis, thus obscuring the characteristic X-shape 
fan of reflections expected from a simple helical structure. For, despite the discovery of the simple B pattern, Franklin at first directed her attention mostly to the A form. Here the molecules themselves are not in random rotational orientations, as in B, but packed regularly in small crystal lines in a crystal lattice. However, the crystal lights are randomly oriented so that the 3D X-ray data is scrambled into two dimensions on the photograph plate. The X-ray pattern nevertheless still shows sharp spots and offers the possibility of an objective crystallographic analysis because of the greater wealth and position of the 3D diffraction data which could be extracted from the 2D pattern. In retrospect, this was a misjudgment, but it was a reasonable decision at the time because, if correctly interpreted, the A pattern would yield more precise information about the DNA molecule. She decided to use what is called Parkinson function analysis on the X-ray data she had measured on the A patterns and, as Gosling said later, let the data speak for itself. This Patterson method is an indirect method which had been used at high resolution to solve the structures of small molecules, but never for such large unit cells. Franklin's Colloquium, November 1951, Watson Creek's first model. In November 1951, Franklin gave a colloquium on her walk at King's College, which Watson attended. There was much contact on and off between Williams and Crick, who were friends, and this led to several visits by Watson to King's. The draft of Franklin's colloquium and her companion notes survive in the archives of Church's College, Cambridge. She describes a very dry form 1 and the two forms crystalline 2 later A and wet 3 later B which is not easily rewetted. She gives the crystal parameters and the lattice symmetry and also the density of A from which she deduced that there were two or three chains of DNA per lattice point. The packing is pseudo-hexagonal, which implies that the molecules have an approximately cylindrical shape with a diameter about 20 Armstrong. Her notes read, Evidence for spiral structure. Straight chain untwisted is highly improbable. Absence of reflections on meridional in crystalline form suggests spiral structure. Nucleotides in equivalent positions occurs only at intervals of 27 Armstrong, corresponding to the length of turn of the spiral. On the basis of the above, Franklin put forward her view that the molecular structure in the A form was likely to be a helical bundle of two or three chains, with the phosphate groups on the outside. The bundles are separated by weak links produced by sodium ions and water molecules. At the highest humidity of the B form, a water shaft disrupts the relationship between neighboring helical bundles and only the parallelism of the axis is preserved. 
The same conclusions are found in Franklin's fellowship report for the year ending 1951. Watson have stated in their reminiscence that Franklin did not mention the bill form, but Hedroff is quite explicit about the helical bundle being preserved in the transition from A to B. Indeed, he notes read helical structure in the wet form cannot be the same as in the crystalline because of large increase in length. Watson took the news as little as much as he understood of it, back to Creek in Cambridge, and now with some structure information to hand, they decided to build the model. They had urged these approach on the King's group, but receiving no response, now felt justified in attempting these themselves. The King's group was invited to see the result, a model built in a week. The model was of three helical chains, with the phosphate on the inside neutralized by cations, with the bases pointing outwards. Franklin asked where was the water, and received the reply that there was not any. It turned out that Watson, not understanding the relationship between a unit cell of a crystal and the asymmetric unit, had conveyed the wrong water content. After this, the bakel Sir Lawrence Bragg, the head of the Cavendish Laboratory, firmly voted any further work on DNA at the MRC unit in Cambridge. In future, it would be done solely at the unit at King's College. Non-helical DNA Franklin pressed ahead with the Pattinson analysis of the A form. There is no question that all along she held the view that B form was helical but could not see a way to solve it except by model building, a path she was reluctant to follow. She knew of Pauling's success in 1951 in predicting by model building the alpha helical and beta sheet configurations of the polypeptide chains of proteins, but she equally well knew of the contemporary failure of Bragg, Kindrew and Peretz on the same problem, the greatest fiasco of my scientific life, Bragg later called it. This was typical of Watson and Creek would only have confirmed a decision to avoid model building and rather to try an analytic crystallographic approach on the A form. However, an unfortunate mechanical accident in one of the spacements led Franklin to take a wrong path. In the spring 1952, one DNA fiber gave an X-ray pattern showing strong double orientation, that is, the 3D crystallites in the A-form were not all in random orientation about the fibre axis, but some orientations occurred more frequently than others. They suggested to her that the symmetry of the crystallite was far from cylindrical, which might rule out a helical structure in the A-form. Franklin concluded that this possibility had to be considered. It is this view of hers which gave rise to her supposed anti-helical stance, but for her it was a question which had to be answered. Unwisely, she ignored Crick's remark to her, made in a TQ at a meeting, that the double orientation was an accident to be dismissed. 
In fact, she seems to have persuaded Wilkins, even though relations were strained between them, to the same view. Thus, ironically, while Franklin does not mention this in the report written in late 1952 for an MRC subcommittee on the work of the King's Unit, Wilkins does so and accepts the possibility of a non halic interpretation of the A-form. This report is the MRC subcommittee report which gave crucial information to Watson and Creek in February 1953 for the building of the correct model of DNA. This misjudgment on Franklin's part influenced her attempts to interpret the Pattinson map of the A-form. She sought explanation in terms of rolls or sheets or a figure of eight, all of which naturally failed. She was apparently thinking of the A-form as an unwound version of the helices in the base state. Presumably, she thought to A to B transition a profound change of structure because she notes more than once that during the transition the spaceman fell off the end of the X-ray collimator to which it was attached. One correct result which emerged in January 1953 from her application of the so-called superposition method to the Patterson map was that the A-form contained two chains and that they ran in opposite directions. Had she been a crystallographer and understood the meaning of the crystal symmetry, C2-phase-centered monocyclic, which she herself had established much earlier, she could have deduced this result at once. Of all the protagonists in the story, only Crick understood this. Moreover, C2 was the space group symmetry of the ox hemoglobin crystals which he was studying for his PhD. It meant that if the A structure was helical, it would consist of two chains, or strands, running in opposite directions, related by a two-fold axis of symmetry perpendicular to the fiber axis, and hence to the pair of chains. Franklin's patternizes ran into an impasse, and in early February she turned to her B-form, the X-ray pattern which was clearly characteristic of some kind of helical structure. Her notebooks show her shuttling back and forth between the two forms. She had by now abandoned her attempts to interpret the A-form in non-helical terms. On the 23rd February she writes, if single-strand helix as above is the basis of structure B, the structure A is probably similar with PP distance along fiber axis less than 3.4 Armstrong, probably 2 to 2.5 Armstrong. On the 24th February she is at last making the correct connection between A and B forms, both have two chains. Of course, she had no idea that at that very time in Cambridge, in February 1953, Crick and Watson were now back to model building of DNA. Nor were they aware of what Franklin had been doing, Watson wrote late in his book, The Double Helix, that Franklin's instant acceptance on first seeing the model surprised him. He had no idea how close she had come to it. 
By March 1953, using helical diffraction theory, Franklin had carried the quantitative analysis of herbiform patterns to the point where the paths of the backbone chains were determined. She had moved to Beebeck College to J.D. Bernal's Department of Physics on the 14th March and there she wrote up her work in a typescript dated 17th March, that is, one day before the manuscript of Watson and Creek's structure prepared for Nita reached King's. Franklin's draft contains all the essentials of her later paper in Nita in April, which together with one by Willings, Stokes and Wilson accompanied Crick and Watson paper announcing their model for the structure of DNA. In Franklin's draft, it is deduced that the phosphate groups of the backbone lie as she had long thought on the outside of the two coaxial helical strands whose geometrical configuration is specified with the bases arranged on the inside. The two strands are separated by 13 Armstrong, but the draft shows she had not yet grasped that the two chains in B also ran anti-parallel as in the A form. Her notebook show that for fitting the bases into the center of the A double helix, she had already formed the notion of the interchangeability of the two purine bases with each other and also of the two pyrimidines. She also knew the correct automeric forms of at least three of the four bases and was aware of Chargraph's base ratio. They step from interchangeability to the specific base pairing postulated by Crick and Watson is a large one, but there is a little doubt that Franklin was poised to make it. What would have happened if Watson and Crick had not intervened in their great burst of insight and Franklin had been left to her own resources? It is a moot point whether she was one and a half of two steps behind and how long it would have taken her to take them. Crick and I have discussed this several times. We agree she would have resolved the structure, but the results would have come out gradually, not as a thunderbolt in a short paper in Nature. Watson and Creek's structure. The fact that polling was now in competition made for a race and Tinkang's group seemed to be divided and making no progress. Bragg was persuaded to unleash Creek and Watson from his earlier band. Watson, two days earlier, had visited King's to give a copy of the polling manuscript to Wilkins. It was then that Wilkins showed him Franklin's drinking May 1952 X-ray picture of the B form with its clear helical features. This made a profound impression on Watson since one could immediately count the number of layer lines leading to the 3.4 Armstrong meridional reflection. He recounted this to Creek along with the order parameters necessary to build a B4 model, the repeat distance of 34 Armstrong indicating 10 units per helical turn. 
a helical slope of 40 degrees, the diameter of about 20 Armstrong of the molecule, and they also remembered Franklin's arguments for the backbones being one on the outside of the molecule and the basis on the inside. The rest of the story is told in Watson's vivid account in his book, which revealed that Watson and Craig had access to details of the information in the MRC subcommittee report on the work on Kings. This was given to them in the second week of February by Marx Perutz, a member of their committee. The report confirmed much that they already knew, but the key fact was the space group symmetry C2 of the A form. Franklin had given days in her colloquium in November 1951 by Watson but would not have understood it. Crick had heard that the crystal was monoclinic, which implied a twofold axis of symmetry, a diet, but this could have been parallel or perpendicular to the fiber axis. C2 required it to be perpendicular to the fiber axis. Watson had begun the building of two chain helical models with the chains running in the same direction. Each chain of pitch 68 Armstrong would repeat after 20 nucleotides, but the two chains were to be exactly half of helical pitch apart so that the structure would repeat after 34 Armstrong in the axial direction. These would fit the best estimate of the number of nucleotides per lattice point, which could be reconciled with the tenfold repeat. The chain had a helical rotation angle of 18 degrees between nucleotides, which brought successive sugars close together and was difficult to build. The C2 symmetry, however, told Crick that there were indeed two chains, that the chains ran in opposite directions and that the helical repeat of 10 units per turn referred to one chain of pitch 34 Armstrong, and so to each of the chains. Click therefore changed the rotation angle to 36 degree, and Watson found the chain easier to build. This was a critical step in getting the backbone structure right. The formal account by Crick and Watson in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, which details the cogent reasoning in arriving at a double helix does not mention the knowledge of the crucial fact of C2 symmetry which they had obtained from the MRC report. It acknowledges information received from Wilkins and Franklin only in general terms. We are most heavily indebted in this respect to the King's College group and we wish to point out that without these data the formulation of our structure would have been most unlikely if not impossible. Presumably there would have been more embarrassment about mentioning the source of the knowledge of the C2 symmetry. It would not have diminished their achievement to have stated it. This next step facing Watson Creek was to fit the bases stacked above each other into the middle of the double helix. The bases are linked by glycosidic bonds to the sugars of the backbones. There was room for two bases in each stack and Watson had been trying different ways of making such pairs, connected by hydrogen bonds initially pairing like with like, thus adenine with adenine and so on. 
in the last week of February. It was, however, pointed out to Watson by Jerry Donahue, who shared an office with him and Creek another chance of events that he was using the incorrect chemical formula to automatic forms for the four bases. When Watson changed these, he found he could fit in adenine thymine as a pair and also guanosine cytosine as a pair. The geometry of each pair was almost identical. Moreover, each base pair could fit either way around between the two chains, A with A and T with A, and similarly for C, G and G, C. The glycosidic bonds were thus automatically related by the perpendicular diet, thus fitting the C2 symmetry, although Watson had not made explicit use of the symmetry in this model building. Remarkably, this pairing also gave an explanation of the earlier finding by Erwin Chargaff that the amount of adenine in any DNA sample equaled that of thymine and similarly of guanine and cytosine. Chargaff's ratio thus automatically arose as a consequence of Watson-based pairing scheme. The structure of DNA was solved. On the 28th February 1953, Crick winked into the Eagle pub close to the Cavendish laboratory where lunch could be had for one shilling and nine pennies and declared to anyone who cared to listen there in the Cavendish Watson and he had discovered the secret of life. Wilkins came to see the model in mid-March and Franklin later at the end of the month. Her instant acceptance amazed. Watson, but then he did not know how far she had got towards it, having heard only of her supposed anti-helical stance. There was agreement between King's and Cambridge to publish separately, and three papers appeared on 25 April 1953, grouped together under the overall title Molecular Structure of Nucleic Acids. Watson and Creek paper contained what appeared to be the famous throwaway sentence. It has not escaped our notice that the specific base pairing we had postulated immediately suggests a possible copying mechanism for the genetic material. Click explained later that they were not being coy, but there was a worry on Watson's part of the structure might be wrong. When they sent the first draft of the paper to King's, they had not yet seen the papers and had little idea of how strongly the King's X-ray evidence supported the structure. After seeing it, they wrote the second Nature paper of May 30th entitled Genetical Implications of the Structure of Deoxyribonucleic Acid to spell out the postulate for the copying mechanism in DNA replication. This paper also contains the first clear statement on the genetic code. The phosphate sugar backbone of our model is completely regular, but any sequence of the pairs of bases can fit into the double helical structure. It follows that in a long molecule many different permutations are possible and it therefore seems likely that the precise sequence of bases in the code which carries genetical information. Proving the model 
The first analytical demonstration of the general correctness of the Watson Creek model came in July 1953 from Franklin and Gosling. They showed that a Pattinson function map of the A form could be fitted by a helical structure with two chains. The task of rigorously testing the model against X-ray diffraction data required more accurate intensity data from better-oriented fiber spacements, and this was undertaken by Wilkins and the King's College group, including Herbert Wilson, Bob Lagrange, and Watson Fuller. It took them about seven years to carry this out. They obtained much improved diffraction patterns from several different DNA sources, built together resolution X-ray cameras, introduced computers to make the calculations and used new analytical methods developed by Schuther Arnold for refining models to fit X-ray fiber diffraction. During the time, there were several objections by crystallographers to the DNA model. These and other objections were finally answered by the rigorous analysis at King's, although other models appeared occasionally through the 60s and 70s. Indeed, it could be said that the former crystallographic proof of the double helic and the base pairing did not occur until 1979 when Drew and Dickinson solved the structure of a dodecameric DNA oligonucleotide of defined sequence by using the total objective Haviato method. The reception of the double helix. It should be remembered that in 1953, the X-ray diffraction crystallography of large biological molecules was still in its infancy and regarded as an exotic pursuit. The first protein structures of myoglobin and hemoglobin were not solved until 1957 and 1959, respectively. The double helix model was well received by geneticists and the phage group when Watson described it at the Cold Spring Harbor meeting in the summer of 1953, but there were doubts about the correctness and indeed relevance of the model on the part of biochemists who, on the wall, still thought of proteins as a genetic material. The best biochemical proof of the structure was correct eventually after Arthur Kornberg, if the hypothetical dyadic structure of DNA with two antiparallel chains were correct, then there must also be relationships between pairs of dinucleotides further to Chargaff rules of individual bases. Thus, the number of AG dinucleotides should equal the number of CT dinucleotides, the number of TG equal to CA, and so on. Kornberg and his colleagues measured the frequencies of dinucleotides in a variety of DNAs. The prediction was proved correct in a most elegant way. Nevertheless, the structure of the double helix, as emphasized by Todd, was still only a discovery in chemistry, and even if correct, the biological implications for application, as postulated by Crick and Watson, persuasive as they were, did not necessarily follow. The proof came in 1958 from the most beautiful experiment in biology by Messelson and Stahl. These demonstrated unequivocally that the complementary strands of a DNA molecule separate from one another, 
and that each strand then serves as the template for the synthesis of a complementary strand duplicating its former partner and so producing two DNA double helices. Biochemists and biologists generally also began to understand that the Watson Creek base pairing allowed an infinite variety of irregular sequences of the four bases of DNA to be accommodated within the double helix, and so it was possible for DNA to act as carrier of genetic information based on the four-letter code AGCT. In 1962, the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine was awarded to Crick, Watson and Wilkins. Rosalind Franklin has died in 1958, so the Nobel Committee was spared the difficulty required by their status of limiting the prize to a maximum of three people. The citation reads, For the discoveries concerning the molecular structure of nucleic acids and its significance, for information transfer in living materials. Note the word information, a term that had never appeared in the writings of biochemists who had been primarily concerned with the transfer of energy in chemical reactions. Indeed, the citation looks forward to the genetic code research on which was well underway by then. The Aftermath as is usually the case, with a fundamental discovery, the discovery of DNA structure was only beginning of a new epoch, the beginning of molecular biology. Many major questions arose. I can deal here only briefly with them. I start with the problem of the replication of DNA. The principle of semi-conservative replication suggested itself to Crick and Watson directly from the structure of the double helix, and is startlingly simple. But how does the helix actually unwind, and how does the sequence of each strand get copied? The implementation of startingly complex. Nucleic acids are only synthesized in one direction, 5' prime to 3'. Prime. How then does the antiparallel strand get copied? Again, the work of a generation of biochemists, notably Arthur Kornberg, has shown that it takes dozens of proteins complexes, each involving many proteins, to accomplish this. They can be thought of a complex components of several giant molecular machines, which synthesize the new DNA, check it for errors, and pass it on for further interactions with package it in chromosomes. There was a second major question, how does the information carried by the sequence of bases in a DNA molecule gets finally transferred into the sequence of amino acids in a protein. The central dogma was formulated by Watson as DNA makes RNA makes protein, and by Crick as sequence information can only pass from nucleic acid to protein and not in reverse. This required genetic code to be worked out, which was largely accomplished in 1962 it has further taken a generation of biochemists to work out the actual biochemical mechanisms involving introscribing DNA into RNA. The enzyme responsible is RNA polymerase, of which there are three varieties in eukaryotes. The enzyme is another complex molecular machine whose structure was recently being solved by Roger Kornberg, and his enzyme acts only after a pre-initiation complex involving dozens of other proteins. 
has been set up to recreate it to a gene to be transcribed. The product RNA is then processed and passed as a messenger from the cell nucleus to the cytoplasm to ribosomes, the protein factories which synthesize proteins of defined sequence. Here the message contained in the sequence of nucleic acid is translated into a sequence of amino acids according to the genetic code and also the polypeptide chain is assembled. Epilogue The discovery of double helix and the elucidation of the genetic code launched the new subjects of molecular genetics and combined with biochemistry the molecular biology of the gene. There also followed over the 50 years what has been called the genetic evolution in biotechnology, but this did not stem directly from the new knowledge. Rather, it depended on the development of tools for handling and manipulating DNA. The key methodological advances were Fred Sanger's method of sequencing DNA and recombinant DNA technology, whereby DNA molecules could be cut and pasted together in new combinations. Segments of DNA could be cloned and multiplied in bacteria and also used to express gene products in them. To these must be added many other powerful methods, for example, the introduction of site-specific mutations in DNA and the polymerase chain reaction which has placed cloning for many purposes. Then there have also been great advances in understanding the regulation of gene expression, that is, the switching of genes on and off in the right place at the right time by combinations of protein transcription factors interacting with the control regions of the gene. In higher organisms, the substrate, so to speak, for the expression is not naked DNA, but chromatin in which DNA is packed in nucleosomes, so there are complex mechanisms for making the control regions accessible to the transcription machinery. Moreover, since transcription factors working on a gene are themselves the products of other genes, we really need to understand the networking of genes. This takes us to the genome, to the human genome project and to the comparative genomes of other organisms. There is much more to find out. Thank you for listening to Pub Reading, follow me on Twitter and on other podcast platforms.